We're, we're, that's exactly the plan, <laughs> especially tonight when there's additional time pressure. Just a reminder that we're going to be ending early tonight. We're going from 7 to 7.40. I'm glad that somebody raised the issue of the KJ Kristallnacht program at the very end of last week's shiur when I announced now. And so I quickly reached out to the rabbi saying, okay, what do we do here? Should I, should I cancel, reschedule? They just said, uh, we never start on time, so if it's called for 7.30, it'll really start 7.40. So my job is to end by 7.40, so those who wish to join the commemoration program can do so right in, right in the building. So we're up to the 7th century now. The 8th century, last week, we talked about the incoming Assyrians as the prophets Hosea and Amos. Each had his very own distinct style. We then marched through. The Assyrians, as we discussed last time, rolled in, exiled the ten lost tribes, destroyed nearly the entire south of Israel, and then just dominated the place for a while. It wasn't until 627 BCE, meaning a century after where we were last week, where the Babylonians began to wake up to the fact that these new Assyrian emperors aren't what the old ones used to be. We think we can beat these guys. And they revolted. The king, Nabopolassar, was the king. He revolted against the Assyrians, which just meant he stopped paying taxes. Well, the Assyrians, everybody knew what would happen if you stopped paying taxes. The Assyrians would roll in with the tanks. They would come in and get ready to destroy you. That was their goal. And they always had done so in the past. Jerusalem was the only city they could not beat. So they rolled into Babylonia, and Babylonians crushed them. It was stunning. And then the Babylonians said, okay, we can take these guys. And they just rolled out of Babylonia, and the entire Assyrian Empire simply collapsed. Which, from my mentality's point of view, is they couldn't collapse sooner, soon enough. Let them go. They were horrible people that just destroyed the globe and particularly inflicted a ton of damage on the people of Israel. Really awful people. And it was from 627 until 609 BCE, in a total of 18 years, the entire Assyrian Empire just completely vanished. 612 is when the city of Nineveh fell, and by 609, the last vestiges of their army, which were all on the retreat, simply got obliterated by the Babylonians, which is good. The prophet Nahum, who is one of the prophets who we're not going to spend a lot of time on, but I gave him source number one out of honor to him, is one of the first 7th century BCE prophets who is addressing the new reality. So he talks about it in source number one. And now I will break off his yoke bar from you and burst your cords apart. He's with joy, predicting the imminent demise of the Assyrians. They had the yoke, you know, you picture the oxen yoked down, that kind of yoke, and God is going to break that yoke right off of you. So everybody hearing Nakum is like, thank God. Those Assyrians have destroyed us to such a degree, and there was simply no breaking them. Nobody could defeat the Assyrians. But now the Babylonians are crushing them. Hallelujah. The people of Israel were thrilled out of their brains to know that the Assyrians are going to fall. That's the good news. The bad news is, guess what? The Babylonians weren't such sweethearts, right? Nabopolassar, the king who destroyed the Assyrian Empire, died in 605, and his crown prince son, Nebuchadnezzar, took the throne from him. And Nebuchadnezzar became the emperor now of the Neo-Babylonian Empire. It went from being a country that was subdued to the Assyrians only 22 years prior. Suddenly now it controlled the ancient Near East, and they were uh, vicious people. They weren't any nicer than the Assyrians. They might have had slightly different battle strategies and so on, but they weren't. They were not good at all. So whereas Nahum is very joyously predicting, good evening. It's so good to see you. Joyously predicting the breaking of the yoke of the Assyrians. Along came 
Jeremiah, who's the greatest of the 7th century BCE prophets, and he says in source number 2, I herewith deliver all these lands to my servant, King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon. I even give him the wild beasts to serve him. The nation or kingdom that does not serve him, King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon, and does not put its neck under the yoke of the king of Babylon, that nation I will visit, declares the Lord, with sword, famine, and pestilence, until I have destroyed it by his hands. In other words, okay, you lost the yoke of the Assyrians, says Nahum, but in comes a brand new yoke, and that yoke is that of the Babylonians. Jeremiah's prophecy, as we discussed way back in April or May, whenever that was, back back in the day before the summer, we talked about how he basically had two messages over a 40-plus year career. Message number one was what any prophet would have told you at any time, repent. We have a lot of work that we have to do on ourselves. And the other one was surrender to those Babylonians. Never, ever, ever revolt. Wear a yoke. Submit to the yoke of the Babylonians, because if you don't, they will crush you like a bug. So that's what's happening in the 7th century. This rapid demise of the Assyrian Empire, good news. And then replacement by the Babylonian Empire, really bad news. I kind of picture it like those old World War II movies that you see when Stalin's Russian troops roll in and destroy the Nazis. So on the one hand, you're thrilled. Thank God somebody's beating the Nazis. On the other hand, it's Stalin. So it's not far away from what you're looking at right here, just ancient world style. Similar thing, two great powers, both of which are terribly evil. So you're still happy when evil number two defeats evil number one, but now there's evil number two to reckon with, and evil number two is no good either. The other prophets of the 7th century BCE, who we're going to look at very briefly, and 20 minutes brief early, right? but all the same, we're going to do our best, Three prophets that also lived during the 7th century all focused on different parts of the Babylonian experience. Again, Nahum was focusing on Baruch Hashem, thank God the Assyrians are gone. Jeremiah is saying, okay, the Assyrians are gone, but we need to submit to the yoke of the Babylonians to survive. The other three prophets in play, Tzfaniah, Chabakuk, and Ovadiah, although we're going to do a Chabakuk, Tzfaniah, and Ovadiah, each picked up on a slightly different facet of the incoming Babylonian destruction. Habakkuk, Sue and I were lamenting the fact, something I always lament, and nobody names their kids Habakkuk anymore. I don't know a single Habakkuk, do you? I've never even read about other than this one. He's the only character in the Bible with that name. And I'm not aware of anybody else who ever chose that name, which is a real bummer, because if you're a good scholar, I, I, I'm, I'm what's called Balabatish. I read it with K's. But a real scholar writes a kuf, gets a Q. So actually his name should have properly three Qs in it. Try that in a game of Scrabble. And it's it's a, it's an it's an amazing name and and it's a beautiful name but nobody's that I'm aware of picked it up so one day we'll find somebody to to take the bait and and get it. Habakkuk actually reacts to the Babylonian impending Babylonian doom with a whole different reaction from that of Jeremiah. Jeremiah's prophetic encounter is the Babylonians are going to destroy the people of Israel because Israel deserves it. Therefore, Israel needs to shape up her act and Israel need, needs to submit to the yoke. Habakkuk is saying, all right, God, I have to have a word with you privately. Because after all, why are the Babylonians destroying the people of Israel? Just ask Jeremiah. Why are they destroying the people of Israel? Israel has sinned. Oh, so what lesson does God wish to teach the people of Israel? That when people are wicked, they could suffer terrible consequences, right? All right, says Habakkuk. Let's, let's take a step out of this, God, because here's what I'm having a hard time figuring out. Okay, fine, I agree with you. The people of Israel are not living up to their side of the bargain. Okay, but look who's conquering them. 
The Babylonians are horrible. They're way worse than we are. So how come they're being so successful? If you're trying to teach that bad things happen to bad people, God, you're failing. We're not learning the right lesson. You're undermining your very message by allowing this vicious nation, the Babylonians, to succeed, and to succeed very wildly. What's up with that? So Habakkuk, rather than focusing on, dear people of Israel, repent ye sinners, or submit to the yoke of Babylonia, that's Jeremiah's business, Habakkuk turns to God and says, God, this message is wrong. And he protests very vigorously. It's a really cool book. That's another reason why people should name their kids Habakkuk. But anyway, all right, fine, maybe some other day. That's his gist. And we'll, we'll go through some key passages in just a moment. Tzfania lived shortly thereafter, but also is dealing with the impending Babylonian doom. He has a whole different picture of the world. It's so cool how each prophet, even though they're all talking about the same event. The event is the Babylonians will come and destroy the people of Israel and destroy the temple. That's the message. They have the same event in mind. But Habakkuk is focusing on the theological ramifications of that. Svanya shows up, and he dreams that the Babylonians are wicked, the Assyrians were wicked, were wicked. And his view is, sorry all of us who are New Yorkers here, myself included, the problem is cities. Cities make people arrogant. Cities get God out of the picture. People become very arrogant and self-sufficient. They don't realize how dependent they are on God's reign, on all, all, all the benefits from God. They become city people. They shut God out. They become very arrogant. And Svanya envisions that one day, not only will Jerusalem and Nineveh fall, but all cities will fall. And what we'll be left with is we're all going to get to be shepherds. Cool, idyllic vision. I'm not getting into any politics. I'm sticking with the prophets. And I'm a much happier person sometimes. But in the meantime, that's Svanya's basic message. His message is that cities inherently cause arrogance and corruption. All cities on his map were wicked, including Jerusalem. So he says, what's the point? We've got to get rid of the cities and go back to a nice shepherding sort of humble lifestyle where everybody is righteous, encounters God in nature, encounters God in the world. The world will be a much better place. That's his basic message, and that's his reaction to the impending Babylonian doom. Cities are all bad. Babylonia is bad. Assyria is bad. Jerusalem is bad. All the other cities around town, they're bad too. they got to go. That's his message in a sentence. Who is he saying? All of these prophets are speaking to the people of Israel, meaning he's not going to Babylonia and saying, Dear Babylonia, wouldn't you like to be shepherds? He's not preaching. He's just saying, he's, he condemns the people of Israel, particularly the nobility, the aristocracy, for being unbelievably corrupt. But rather than just saying, okay, it's just corruption, he says, the problem is city life. We've got to go back to the shepherd thing. Right? That's his picture. Then you have the prophet Ovadiah. Ovadiah is only one chapter long. It's just 21 verses. His main message is, even though the big enemy was Babylonia, right? He witnessed the destruction of the temple. He might have been standing by Jeremiah's side for all we know. But he was certainly in the neighborhood. His view was, I'm not going to talk about the Babylonians at all. Even though I would have thought that was the main headline, because they were the guys who destroyed the people, they destroyed Israel, they exiled many of our people, they burned the temple to the ground. Instead, Ovadia focuses on a totally secondary enemy that wasn't even involved in the fight. And that was a little tiny nation called Edom. The descendants of Esav originally, Yaakov's brother. He was 
furious at Edomite behavior at the time of the destruction, when the Edomites started to celebrate the downfall of Israel, dancing on their rooftops, they started saying, hey, if Israel's going into exile, we can hop their land. So they started drawing maps of who gets this house, who gets that land, who gets that field, and so on and so forth. They were thrilled. And if any refugees fled the Babylonian attack, fled the flames, looking for some refuge somewhere, the Edomites were there, captured them, either killed them themselves or turned them back into the Babylonians. So Ovadia, rather than focusing on what you and I would consider by far the big story, his sole focus is on the vicious, wicked, and unnecessary behavior of Edom. And he gives them quite a bit of condemnation for just 21 verses. So those are the three prophets we're going to look at briefly tonight. We'll start with Habakkuk, source number three over here. The pronouncement made by the prophet Habakkuk. Do everybody have source sheets, by the way? Jack, you're doing a great job. Keep it up. The pronouncement made by the prophet Habakkuk. How long, O Lord, shall I cry out and you not listen? Shall I shout to you violence and you not save? Wow, that's a great way for a prophet to open up his book. He just starts screaming at God. And not only is he screaming at God, what we find out from this one verse is, obviously, he's been screaming for quite some time already. He says, how long do I need to yell at you before you give me any answers? Meaning, I've been yelling at you for some time. And evidently, I'm really frustrated that I don't get any answers. Hey, I'm a prophet. Come on, you actually can talk to me. So please do. I need some answers here. We have no idea what his problem is other than I already told you. That's how the book opens up. Verse 3. Why do you make me see iniquity? Why do you look upon wrong? Raiding and violence are before me. Strife continues and contention goes on. That is why decision fails and justice never emerges. For the villain hedges in the just man. Therefore, judgment emerges deformed. In the ensuing verses, which are not in the source sheets, but you can read it for yourself, he describes what the problem is, that the Babylonians are coming, they're going to destroy Israel, and then he turns back to God and says, these people are horrible people. Why are you allowing them to succeed? And if you do allow them to succeed, you've undermined your own message. Habakkuk is facing the classic quandary. It's kind of the opposite of the book of Job, right? Which we'll get to sometime down the road. Not even too far, but sometime down the road, January-ish. Habakkuk is focusing not on the problem of why bad things happen to good people, right? He's focusing on why good things happen to bad people. Right? Which is equally unfair, even though I think most of us are more bothered when bad things happen to good people. We'd rather let some bad person get off the hook for a little while and, and not see any good person suffer. I think most people are in that camp. That's why Harold Kushner never wrote the book of why, bad, why good things happen to bad people. It wouldn't be as good of a seller as the one that he chose to write. So that all being said, Habakkuk is furious at God and he protests and he says, I want some answers. And then chapter 2 opens up in source 4. I will stand on my watch Take up my station at the post and wait to see what he will say to me. What he will reply to my complaint. In other words, I'm going to stand right here until I get some answers. If you know rabbinic lore, who does this sound like? It sounds like Choni. There's a famous story in the Talmud, which, by the way, quotes this verse. In other words, the story is deliberately modeled after Habakkuk. It's not just that you and I are using the same imagination. The Talmud specifically wants Choni, the holy man of that time, to be modeled after the great protester Habakkuk. Choni is a story of a holy man in the, in the rabbinic period where there was a drought and nobody could get God to bring any rain and they prayed and they prayed and all the rabbis did their things and nothing was working. So they got holy man Choni, who wasn't a sage, he was a holy man. 
And he just drew a circle and said, just like Habakkuk, and the Talmud says that specifically, God, I'm going to stand right over here until I get some rain. And eventually that worked. So the leading rabbi at that time was a man named Shimon ben Shetach. Poor rabbis. Rabbis have it tough. Here he wasn't dealing with difficult people. He was dealing with a holy man who was successful. But he found Choni's prayer utterly obnoxious. How in the world do you make this kind of demand of God? From a rabbinic point of view, you can't do that. Read our prayer book. We don't make demands like that. Right? So he wrote a letter to Choni. He said, Dear Choni, I really want to excommunicate you because your prayer is disgusting. How dare you speak to God that way? On the other hand, I can't help but notice that God listened to you. Right? <laughs> right? He doesn't say it quite that way, but he realizes his own paradox. Like, wait a second. God didn't listen to me. He listened to you. So how can I excommunicate you? But that's the rabbinic p- paradox in that story. You know, he, want, he, said, he wants to tell the world this type of prayer is inappropriate. And by the way, he feels the same about Habakkuk. But he says, I can't help myself. Here's a prophet of God protesting, and God answers him in just a moment. And then Choni protests like this, and he is answered also. He got his ring. So it must be that God thought it was okay, so who am I to argue with God? So that, that was the struggle that he had to face right now. So here's God's answer in verse 2. The Lord answered me and said, Write the prophecy down and inscribe it clearly on tablets so that it can be read easily. Wouldn't it be nice, whatever he wrote on these tablets, wouldn't it be nice if we could have an answer on of the problem of unfairness and just have it on a billboard and feel good about that? That would be great. Drive by the highway going 70 miles an hour or whatever you're going. And it's like, okay, here's the answer to the problem of unfairness. Zoom. For further information, call, you know, 1-800-THEODICY or whatever you're going to call. And it sounds like we're going to get a very easy answer, which somehow we all missed, for why wicked people can be successful. And then God says, for there is yet a prophecy for a set term, a truthful witness for a time that will come. Even if it tarries, wait for it still, for it shall surely come without delay. Lo, his spirit within him is puffed up, not upright, but the righteous man is rewarded for life for his fidelity. Okay, there's... So, uh, what's the answer to why wicked people prosper sometimes? <coughs> hmm? Okay, so there's two, fi- the answer is I don't know what these verses mean, right? So there's a couple thousand, it should have been an easy answer that you could put on a billboard, but guess what? You can't have easy answers to hard, impossible questions like that. There's no easy answer here. And commentators swing into action, and there are two tracks Gloria, what you said is actually one of the tracks. So very well said. One classic track <coughs> within throughout the Bible that you get for why the wicked prosper is, you need to be patient. Yes, sometimes the wicked prosper, but it's always temporary. So if you just wait, they'll lose it before they die. Don't you worry. Nothing to do with afterlife. They will lose it and suffer plenty in this world. That is a very common answer. We say it every Shabbat, right? Whenever you see wicked people sprouting out like grass, God is going to destroy them forever. You have nothing to worry about. Only fools are troubled by this problem. The reality is, I know very smart people, including the prophet Habakkuk, who is also bothered by this problem. It's not just fools. Right? So one track of interpreting Habakkuk, God's answer to Habakkuk is, you need to be more patient, Habakkuk. They'll get theirs also. The other track is, this is an unfathomable problem, Habakkuk, and I'm not going to tell you the answer because it's beyond human comprehension. No person, not even a prophet, can understand this. 
So when it says, The righteous man is rewarded for, with life for his fidelity. That's one translation. That translation takes for granted that, oh, righteous people will do very well. You just need to be patient. That was excellent timing, by the way. I like the tune that fit in with the righteous people. But in the meantime... The other track of Vitsarik Vemunatoyichia means a righteous person will live with his or her faith, meaning you don't know why these things happen at all, but remain cling, cling to God. That is not an answer, it's a response. Rabbi Salavechik, Rabbi Joseph Salavechik, back in 1956, gave one of his many, you know, eternal, immortal lessons. He was talking shortly after the Holocaust and after the founding of the State of Israel. So it had particular poignancy in 1956. For some reasons, I missed that lecture, unfortunately, like I missed all of his lectures. Never never heard him or met him, but in the meantime, it, it was before my time. But that all being said, Rav Soloveitchik in, in 1956 gave the classic lecture which became known as Kol Dodido Fake. Hark, my beloved calls. And his argument was at the very beginning, he spoke about the Holocaust. He said, anybody who tries to explain why it happened is, is <laughs> either really, really kidding himself in a terribly arrogant sort of way, or you're just going to be depressed trying to solve unfathomable problems. <coughs> Nobody knows why these things happen, big or small. This happens to be a big thing that he was talking about. But any little small disaster or, or tragedy that we all witness, you can't explain that either. He says the wrong Jewish response is to try to ask the question, why did this happen? Because if you ask that question, you're going to be miserable, be angry at God, and you're not going to get any answers anyway. The proper Jewish response, he argued, very forcefully and beautifully, is we have to ask, granting that something happened that is terrible and we don't know why, what are we supposed to do now? Rabbi Lukstein regularly teaches that lesson, and I've only been around here for a year and a half. Right? I mean, it's, it's a, as a student of Rav Soloveitchik, it's a lesson that comes across loud and clear. The, the, a tragedy becomes an opportunity for us to act and improve something, whether ourselves our relationship with our family, community, whatever we're up to, there are things that we can do in reaction to tragedies that are unfathomable and make something better. So that was his argument for, you know, he would never have said, you know, these sick arguments of, oh, the Holocaust happened in order to enable the state of Israel to be founded. It's a sickening argument. Frankly, I'd rather have neither. Right? I'm glad, you know, it's the biggest blessing that we have the state of Israel, but to say, oh, this was payback is... It's beyond, right? So he said, the point isn't since A, therefore B. The point is, since the Holocaust happened, what is our responsibility? And therefore, it's our responsibility to build up the state of Israel and to support it in every way that we can. That was a short form of what obviously was a much more important and profound speech. So that's taking the second approach of the tzaddik be'amunah that the righteous shall live by his faith. It means that even though we don't know why things happen. We can't know. It's beyond human comprehension. Even that of Habakkuk, even that of Moshe, it still remains one of the ways that we have lived through all of the eras of many things happening that we really just can't understand. The Talmud actually considers this principle, the righteous shall live by his faith, as the hinge on which the entire Torah revolves. And source number five over here, Tractate Makot. David came and reduced the 613 commandments to 11 principles. They have a bargaining game of which biblical passage boils down the essence of the Torah. So David was able to do it in 11. Isaiah came and reduced them to six principles. Micha came and reduced them to three principles. Again came Isaiah and reduced them to just two principles. But it is Habakkuk who came. Oh. And based them all on one principle, as it is said, but the righteous shall live by his faith. Wow. That is the essence of our religion, according to this Talmudic passage. If you have faith in God, even though you don't understand how the world works, 
everything else will come. Right? And it's, an, it's an amazing passage, and it's all riding on this passage in Habakkuk that we have seen. So that's the essence of Habakkuk. Habakkuk walks away from this book not having any answers to the problem that he posed to God, but at least recognizing, okay, so the world is unfair right now, I don't understand why it's unfair, I have no idea why the Babylonians are suffering, but now I feel like I'm closer to God through this struggle. And that is a very mature level of faith. Not everybody is up for it, but the prophets try to advance this level of faith rather than giving pat answers to difficult questions. So that's Habakkuk in a nutshell. Moving over to Tzvanya. If you like bleak and doom-like prophecies, by the way, you need to read more of him. It is unbelievably stark, bleak, horrible. It's just three chapters long. It's really very short. There's something called Yom Hashem. We just talked about it last week. The Day of the Lord. Day of the Lord, as far as the Tanakh is concerned in the Bible, it's all about when God manifests himself in some spectacular way and bad people suffer big time. Well, Tzvanya, in this three-chapter-long book, it's so teeny, this theme comes up 23 times. That is a lot of times. That's what it's all about. He's talking about the impending Babylonian destruction of the world, not just about Israel. And he focuses, he plays ping-pong. Israel is corrupt, and therefore the Babylonians are coming. These other nations around us are corrupt, therefore the Babylonians are coming. Switch back to Israel, that we're still corrupt, therefore the Babylonians are coming. That's basically what it's all about. One thing that he does at the very beginning is he uses important imagery in all of this. Source 7. The word of the Lord that came to Tzfanya, son of Cushi, son of Gedaliah, son of Amariah, son of Chizkiah, during the reign of King Josiah, son of Ammon of Judah. I will sweep everything from the away from the face of the earth, declares the Lord. I will sweep away man and beast. I will sweep away the birds of the sky and the fish of the sea. I will make the wicked stumble, and I will destroy mankind from the face of the earth, declares the Lord. So basically, it's the flood imagery that we just read about four days ago in the Torah, right? It's simply another flood-like imagery. It doesn't mean that 100% of the population is going to be destroyed this time around, but he uses the imagery of everything is going to be destroyed, all living creatures. In fact, Tzvanya's poetic take is even one step worse than Noah's flood. Why? It's the same thing as Noah's flood in terms of who dies, except he throws in the fish who did fine during Noah's flood. They're not listed among the things that are going to be doomed because after all, they could just keep right on doing whatever they were doing pre-flood. Right? So fish are not mentioned in the Torah and Parshat Noah, whereas here, Tzvanya, as long as he's going for it, okay, everything has got to go, even the fish. So he one-ups the flood imagery. Now, of course, the Babylonians are really not going to go into the waters and harpoon every single fish that they find. It's not a literal prediction. The point is that there's going to be worldwide destruction on account of the Babylonians. So that's how he opens his book, and it doesn't get cheerier as things go on. You jump over to source 9, and Svanya's contemporary Jeremiah has the same imagery in his own way. He says, I look at the earth, it is unformed and void. At the skies, their light is gone. The Hebrew for unformed and void is tovavohu. This is the only place in the entire Bible where this expression appears outside of the second verse of the entire Torah. The idea is that God's act of creation was it started unformed and void, tovavohu. Then God created and had a huge project and human morality is what upholds creation. The whole flood that we read about last week is the, what happens when people are bad. God, it undermines the very fabric of creation, and so the world just collapses on itself. Jeremiah, looking at the Babylonian exile, is saying the same thing. He's saying the world is going back to its pre-God project stage, 
It's going back to this unformed and void state, which of course is a total disaster. Creation is being undone. Tzvanya, his contemporary, does it by saying, okay, another flood situation. We're simply reversing the creation and the life cycle that God had built and making things all bad. So they're using various imageries from the opening chapters of the whole Bible, from the whole Torah, in order to describe what the Babylonian attack and exile is going to be like. Okay, so that's how it all starts. We go to source number 10. Gather together, gather, O nation without shame, before the day the decree is born, the day flies by like chaff, before the fierce anger of the Lord overtakes you, before the day of anger of the Lord overtakes you. Seek the Lord, all of you humble of the land who have fulfilled his law. Seek righteousness, seek humility. Perhaps you will find shelter on the day of the Lord's anger. He's holding out for those humble, righteous people, because they're the only, they're his only hope. The seacoast Karod shall be an abode for shepherds and folds for flocks, meaning that city is going down, shepherd time. That shall be a portion of the remnant of the house of Judah. On these pastures they shall graze their flocks. They shall lie down at eventide in the houses of Ashkelon. For the Lord their God will take note of them and restore their fortunes. In other words, the cities are all going to go and he just rattles them off. And replaced one by one by sheepfolds. The humble people are coming back. We're going to have grazing. We're going to have sheep. No more cities. And finally, once those cities all go, we go to source 11. For then I will make the peoples of pure of speech so that they all invoke the Lord by name and serve him with one accord. All humanity will be united with Safagrura, with one speech. What is this the antidote to? The Tower of Babel, which we just read about last week. Our timing is impeccable. I didn't rig the whole course that we can get to this by Parshat Noah, but boy, this was good. Yeah, the Tower of Babel is the opposite of that, where all humanity is united in building a city that shuts God out. It's the ultimate city in the Torah. And the ultimate one that shuts God out. So what Tzfanya is saying is the Tower of Babel, meaning cities everywhere, all these arrogant cities, they're all going to collapse. And then finally will be one united accord serving God. If you are a New Yorker or you come from some other city and are offended by this idea that cities have to disappear in order to create the ideal world, you should know that this is Tzfanya's vision. But if you want an alternative, we discussed it last year in the book of Isaiah. He was a city prophet. And his messianic vision is exactly the opposite of this. He says the solution to bad cities is the ideal city. His vision isn't sheep and shepherds. His vision is Jerusalem being the ideal city. We should build the temple. We should have a thriving metropolis over there. And all the nations of the world are going to come flooding. We could turn a city into a city of holiness. So it's a magnet for people everywhere. That's his different vision of what happens when you have a lot of arrogance and corruption out there. It's all about arrogance and corruption. The cities just need to vanish. Isaiah says, no, we need to build the ideal city because there are so many cities that are corrupt. And they both play off of the Tower of Babel imagery, by the way, in their respective visions because they're dealing with exactly this problem. So that's Svanya's vision, though, that cities are going to go and they're going to be replaced by sheepfold. You should know that in the good old days, 10th, 11th, 12th centuries, before the Crusades basically destroyed the Jewish communities in Israel. There were Jewish communities in Israel that had what's called the triennial cycle. They actually, instead of reading, they would take out the Torah every Shabbat like we do. But in Babylonia, they finished the whole Torah once a year, like what we do. Well, there were certain communities that finished it in three, three and a half years instead. So that meant, among other things, you had to get a lot more Haftarot in play. Because you needed a prophetic passage for each Torah portion, and suddenly there's three times as many Torah portions. So the 
Haftarah that they chose for the Tower of Babel was our passage in Svanya. They understood very, very well that Svanya was the antidote to the Tower of Babel. So they said, this is it. We're going to read about the story of the, a city gone bad. And here's Svanya's answer to that. These cities need to go. And he just goes on, verse 11, in our passage in Source 11. In that day you will no longer be shamed for all the deeds by which you have defied me. For then I will remove the proud and exultant within you, and you will be haughty no more on my sacred mount. Enough arrogance, the cities have to go. But I will leave within you a poor, humble folk, and they shall find refuge in the name of the Lord. The remnant of Israel shall do no wrong and speak no falsehood. A deceitful tongue shall not, shall not be in their mouths. Only such as these shall graze and lie down. Even the people are describing as being sheep. Right, they're going to graze and lie down with none to trouble them. The wicked cities are gone. The humble shepherds are back. In fact, the shepherds themselves seem to enjoy munching on grass. It's all part of the image of Tzvanya saying cities are just inherently a problem. As opposed to Isaiah who will kick and scream and say, no, 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 I'm going to give my entire life's work to trying to perfect Jerusalem to be that ideal city that could then be a model for everybody else. So that is Tzvanya's prophecy in a nutshell. Ovadiah, this is going to be a very small nutshell, but i got seven minutes. I'm pacing it the way I... You have no idea what I've been trying to do because it's hard to get all what I try to do into 60 minutes, right? Suddenly I have to take those 60 minutes and make them 40. So far, uh, it's a a good mental exercise. It forces you to condense a lot. But uh, but to still be somewhat coherent and comprehensible, that's always the the thing that I'm trying to do with it. So with that, we have Ovadiah. What I'm going to do, Ovadiah is... As I mentioned before, his his prophecy breaks up into two halves. The first half are verses 1 through 14, where he just trashes the Edomites for all the wicked things that they did during the time of the destruction of the temple. Then the second half, you look over here in source 12. As you did, so so shall it be done to you, for your conduct shall be requited. In other words, Edom, you're going to get payback for this. Yea, against all nations the day of the Lord is at hand. The house of Jacob shall be fire, and the house of Joseph flame, and the house of Esav shall be straw. They shall burn it and devour it. No survivor shall be left of the house of Esav, for the Lord has spoken. Thus they shall possess the Negev and Mount Esav as well, the Shephelah and Philistia. They shall possess the Ephraimite country and the district of Samaria, the Benjaminite along with Gilad. In other words, the Jews are going to come back to Israel and inherit their land again. And that exiled force of Israelites shall possess what shall belong to the Phoenicians as far as Tsarephat, while the Jerusalemite exile community of Sfarad shall possess the towns of the Negev. This is the only place in the entire Tanakh that the word Sfarad appears. And you have Tsarephat right before that. Okay, so what is Tsarephat and what is Farad? Hmm? Hmm? Definitely not France and Spain. But in the medieval period, boy oh boy, did these become France and Spain. The, Jew, the rabbis living in France and Spain interpreting this passage, they all thought it meant France and Spain, and of course they identified very closely with it. So I got four or four, five minutes, I'm going to go for it. Edom in the biblical period means the Edomite nation, the descendants of Esau living southeast of the land of Israel, a small nation that gave us a lot of headaches and heartaches, and during the time of the destruction, they were particularly brutal. Specifically, they attacked refugees and killed refugees as they were fleeing or turned them back into their captors. Ovadiah starts an amazing prophetic move which is, he started saying, hey, the Edomites are just like an ancient people, also from the family of Esav, who also specialized in attacking civilians. And that was Amalek. Abadiah realized, this is Amalek-like behavior. 
In other words, they're not attacking our army. They're not an ally of the Babylonians. We would hate them for that too, but in a different way. That's what enemies do. Ovidia has no resentment toward the Babylonians, because after all, we revolted against them, so yeah, we hate them, and they destroyed us. But he understands that. They were an enemy because they were a vicious, ruthless superpower. The Edomites were our cousins who were killing fleeing civilians. That's like Amalek. And what Ovadiah starts to do here, and what the prophet Ezekiel, who also lives at this time, he does the same thing for the same reason. They start using the term Edom to mean two things. One is that actual nation, and the other one is it became a symbol of evil. Just like we use the term Amalek for a symbol of evil. When we talk about Nazi Germany, reminder that the second I'm done, you can go to the Kristallnacht program, if you would like, right upstairs. We would refer to Nazi Germany as Amalek, not because we care about their biological descent. It's irrelevant. They epitomize what Amalek is about. The ultimate evil as far as the Tanakh is concerned. Well, that term Edom started to be that. And that's why the rabbis, starting with Rabbi Akiva and others during the Bar Kokhba rebellion, began to refer to the Roman Empire as Edom. They weren't descendants of Esav, or at least most of them were not. But they were evil. So all those midrashim that I learned as a kid, and I'm sure some of you might have learned the same midrashim about how wicked Esav is, the rabbis who made these midrashim didn't think that the person Esav was as wicked as they were making him out to be. He's a boor in the Torah, but there's a lot of sympathy for him. He's not a, he's not a horrible fellow, right? But in rabbinic literature, oh boy, he is horrible. And that's because what the rabbis are doing is giving sermons about how rotten Rome is, but of course, if they would have said the word Rome, they would have literally been crucified. So Esav or Edom became code for Rome. And in fact, there's a great Midrash, which you don't understand until you realize that they're talking about the Romans. They talk about the pig. They refer to Esav as a pig. Not in the sense of, we, the, colloquially, the way we use it. We use it in, they use it in the sense of, a pig is the only animal with a cloven hoof that doesn't chew its cud. So they say that the pig puts forth its cloven hoof. Look! I'm kosher, uh, but don't be fooled. What they're saying is the Romans seem civilized. It sounds like they're humane. They have laws, they have a culture. They do have a culture, much of which has influenced us a lot for the good. But watch out for these guys. They're not kosher. It's a trick. So they plugged that into Esau, but they were really talking about the ancient Roman Empire, which was brutal to the Jewish people, truly brutal. And that became the code. In the medieval period, the rabbis of France took that Rome imagery and turned it into the Christian empire. And that's how they began to use the terminology. They understood that Edom now is the Christian world. And with it, they started interpreting this passage that we're looking at as, and the Jews from France and from Spain are going to come back to Israel. They used this interpretation to give themselves morale as they were being completely oppressed by the Christian powers, which were no friends of the Jewish people, by and large, especially in the, in the medieval period. It was really a dark a dark period for the Jews who were living there. So that's what, medievally, this passage came to mean. But it's not what it meant originally. Sarafat is a town north of Israel in Phoenicia, and Sfarad isn't Spain. Sfarad was pro- most likely, scholars debated, probably was Sardis in Asia, Asia Minor. And so that's probably what Ovadia is talking about. He's talking about Jews who have been exiled to much closer locations than France and Spain, but that's what it became. There's a huge history of interpretation of Ovadia, all based on the transition of Edom stopping to just be a local regional menace to 
these guys are pinning out as Amalek, and we're going to start referring to really evil people by Edom. And that's how the prophets began to use the terminology. There's a lot more to say, but it is exactly 7.40. I've done my job. So on that happy note, those who wish to go upstairs to the Kristallnacht evening program,